Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere and each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. The views expressed in the following program are those of the participants and do not necessarily reflect the views of Saga 960 AM or its management. Good evening, everyone, and welcome to the Brian Crombie Radio Hour on Saga 960. I want to welcome back uh, Heather Exner-Perot, who is a senior fellow with the McDonald Laurier uh, Institute and a visiting scholar at the, is it called the Wilson Institute? The Wilson Center, yeah. The Wilson Center. Uh, and uh, we're going to have to ask you a little bit about what the Wilson Center and McDonald Laurier Institute are, because obviously I don't know them as well as I should. But I got to tell you, you have recently written three really interesting articles uh, um, mostly about sort of uh, the oil and gas uh, uh, business uh, in Canada, um, but uh, you know nuclear um, nuclear issues, uh, indigenous issues, uh, etc. And it's just fascinating. And I really wanted to uh, to have you back to talk about some of these. How are you doing? I'm doing great. Thanks for having me back on the show, Brian. My pleasure. So you know, I thought this one was really quite interesting about a super giant gas field in Canada. And I think it's your argument that we've got these resources that we're not exploiting. Is that is that correct? Well, I mean, we are all very, you know, acutely aware, I think, of the energy crisis, the high prices of natural gas, um, how, you know, the Germans, the Europeans are asking us to do more, to bring more over. Um, you know, we want to get off Russian gas supplies and also get off coal. And, you know, it just so happens that Canada has, you know, one of the one of the best, you know, super giant gas fields in the world sitting, you know, straddling BC and Alberta. Um, and there is some production coming up, but um, is not is not nearly as developed as our American counterparts have developed theirs. And so if you've heard of the Marcellus um, or, the, or the Pembrian or the or the Bakken, the Monty is, is uh, you know, equivalent or better than all of those. Um, but but, you know, it's just harder in Canada to get these things done. So here's this trillion dollar, you know, at today's prices. Trillion dollar. Dollars, trillion dollar reserve. Um, just, you know, centuries worth of, of natural gas. Also um, natural gas liquids. Uh, also oil. Everything sitting there, uh, but hard to get out. And so that's just, you know, to, to, so people can appreciate with the resource that we have, if only we could develop it. Okay, we're going to come back and. And delve into a little bit uh, greater detail. But then you wrote about uh, an indigenous pipeline deal with Enbridge. Tell me about that. Yeah, well, I mean, and this is, you know, this is the third of, of three big pipeline deals that have happened in about the last year and a half, two years. And I guess that was the point I wanted to make is that I think we're used to about hearing about indigenous peoples and pipelines in a very negative way, very confrontational, antagonistic, um, but, un, you know, kind of under the radar. Uh, are these actually incredible indigenous ownership equity deals? And I guess it's, it's no surprise that kind of the, the most advanced, sophisticated indigenous equity uh, deals are coming from oil and gas because they need the most social license. They need they need that support to to get a lot of their, you know, to move forward and get the social license to develop. 
Uh, but this particular Enbridge deal uh, involved, you know, just over a billion dollars in equity for a series of their pipelines in, in northern Athabasca region in Alberta. 23 communities, First Nations, Métis, Cree, Dene, uh, Treaty 6, Treaty 8. So a big consortium of, of Indigenous communities. And, Sorry, uh, and you're saying they invested a billion dollars? Are they going to make a billion dollars? Or, or Enbridge what? sold. Enbridge sold a big stake of the pipeline deals to these communities uh, in, in quite a good gesture for Enbridge. You know, it, they're already built, so they're not risky. Uh, the one nice thing about pipelines people don't always know is that they have very predictable, stable revenues. These ones are already already have those contracts, already have those stable revenues, and are going to get great own source revenue to those Indigenous communities. And then you wrote another one about nuclear, which is a little bit off topic uh, for the oil and gas. But tell me about this nuclear article you wrote. Well, it's all energy and it's all resources, Brian. And I guess that's what I'm here for. But I happen to be from Saskatchewan. And, uh, and you know, thinking of the Montany, the other, you know, amazing resource we have in Canada. You know, if I think of the Montany, the oil sands, those ones are maybe a bit well known. Some of the oil sands are. Uh, but, you know, just about 150 kilometers east of the oil sands is the Athabasca Basin, which is probably the richest uranium basin in, in the world, certainly, you know, highest grade. Um, two of the three most valuable mines in the world are in the Athabasca Basin uh, by, by of any ore, not just uranium, of any ore, because, you know, per ton, the value. Anyway, so, so we have a great uranium company, Cameco, there. And they just uh, had a, a mega deal with Brookfield based out of Toronto to buy Westinghouse, which is the big American uh, nuclear energy company. Uh, you know, this is a $8 billion deal. I think Cameco came in um, with a 49% stake. And this is really, you know, you know, it made me made a few business pages, maybe it was, you know, on the Star Phoenix, it got some, got some but, but this is of geopolitical uh, of significance. And when I said, is, there's nothing the federal government has done since February that is more geopolitically significant because it paves the way for Canada to lead in nuclear energy, makes it easier for people to buy nuclear energy because now we have something equivalent or going to be equivalent to Russia's Rosatom. The Russians are very dominant in nuclear enrichment in the uranium space, uh, sorry, uranium enrichment. And this is this is the West's answer to that. Um, and, and, and much in the way that the Germans are dependent on Russian gas, uh, a lot of the Eastern, you know, kind of former Soviet uh, or Eastern European countries are also dependent on uh, nuclear energy from Russia and the, and the you know, enriched uh, nuclear that, your my copy is going uranium that they have. So this is another path forward so that they don't have to depend on Russian uh, uranium energy. So just a blockbuster of a deal, the biggest thing to happen to nuclear energy since Fukushima, but in a much better way. Wow, three big issues we're going to chat about today. Thank you so much. I'm looking forward to it. We're going to take a break for some messages and come back in just two minutes with Heather Exner-Perot, a uh, senior fellow with the McDonald Laurie Institute and a, a visiting scholar at uh, the Wilson Center. Stay with us, everybody. Uh, two minutes, we'll be back. Stream us live at saga960am.ca. Welcome back, everyone, to the Brian Crombie Radio Hour on Saga 960. My guest tonight is Heather Exner Perot. She is a Senior fellow with McDonald Laurier Institute and a visiting scholar at the Wilson Center. Maybe just off the top, Heather, tell me a little bit about what the McDonald Laurier Institute is and what the Wilson Center is so we know 
what I'm saying when I'm talking about your credentials. Perfect. Well, they're both think tanks uh, and think tanks are, are um, I mean, there is some public funding, but, you know, kind of an answer to universities of having, uh, and often, you know, professors are in think tanks, but having some experience um, analysis, I guess, uh, maybe what usually more policy focused than, you know, where a university might do kind of peer research or curiosity-based research. So in both of the cases, it is public policy. At McDonnell-Laurie Institute, uh, you know, kind of the mantra is, you know, not to allow any bad policy pass through Ottawa um, and kind of no, 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 no fear or no favor of, of government and just to hold them to account. Um, so they have a domestic program, so rule of law, uh, public health, those kinds of things they've been focusing on, international, um, and so have taken, um, you know, you know, kind of a hard stance, I would say, on authoritarian regimes in the last five years, and and everything is is coming up that we felt we were we got the situation pretty good on China and Russia and others in the last two years, but um, that's generally the approach on on foreign and defense, and then indigenous, uh, and doing lots of indigenous. Uh, a lot of resource development, but also on quality of life, water housing issues as well. And the Wilson Center, so I'm actually on a fellowship in Washington, D.C. until Christmas. The Wilson Center is the equivalent of the Woodrow Wilson Presidential Library. So that was the president during uh, World War I. Uh, and instead of a presidential library, he got this think tank. So it is partially funded by Congress, partially funded by private sources, meant to be strictly nonpartisan because it is does have congressional funding. Uh, and their uh, specialty in the think tank world is regions. So they would have, you know, uh, you know, a Chinese institute, a Russian institute, Latin American institute, and also some countries, Mexico, uh, Canada. I'm there jointly with the Canada Institute and the Polar Institute. So studying Canadian polar um, issues, mostly focused on resource development, and indigenous issues. Fantastic. Sounds uh, quite interesting. Uh, I really want to come back now to the natural gas uh, article that you wrote in this big uh, gas field that you mentioned. Um, you know, last time we chatted, uh, I told you about my trip to Fort McMurray and, and how uh, how amazed I was at the at the um, the oil sands uh, development. And you commented at the time that uh, I, I should have focused a little bit more on natural gas and uh, that natural gas was quite uh, uh, extensive. And you commented at the time, I thought about a field that was uh, between Alberta and British Columbia. And is this the field or is this a different field that you're That's not talking about? Field. So the Montney is the biggest, but there's also the Horn and Laird. So there's a few basins. Um, and if people have heard of the shale revolution, maybe. So, you know, we're um, in 2008, the last time we had kind of an energy crisis, an oil, an oil spike, we were running out of conventional oil. And then, you know, some American companies developed a way, hydraulic fracking uh, and hard horizontal drilling uh, to get more oil and gas out of out of shale rock. And the money, I think, is limestone, not shale, but it's the same innovation, the, the, the fracking and the horizontal drilling that allows you to release, um, you know, all these hydrocarbons that are stuck in there. Um, so that's what, so it's, it's, it's similar, you know, it's part of the shale revolution, but not shale, but it's that same kind of technology that's allowing it now to be exploited. Whereas we thought, you know, 15 years ago, it was stuck in there forever. Now, many environmentalists don't like fracking. Tell me exactly what fracking and horizontal drilling is and why environmentalists don't like it and why you think it might be okay. Well, I would hate to pretend to be an expert on fracking. The engineers would, any engineers listening to this would not want to hear me describe it. Uh, but as I understand, it's, you know, that the there are hydrocarbons, but it's very tight and and it's kind of cracking the rock to release it. Um, why the environmentalists don't like it, I think, you know, and there's been bans on it 
um, in some states, um, in some countries. And I think it was just this, I, you know, there are, I mean, obviously there are some environmental concerns in some places, but overall it hasn't the kind of the dire warnings that people had in 2008, 2010 with fracking and, and the drilling have not arisen. So people might uh, be concerned with it releasing into water sources. Of course, those are legitimate concerns. They can be mitigated. Um, and, you know, tremors that you're kind of disturbing the earth and you could have some small earthquakes uh, that come arise from it. But um, those have not been at the magnitude that kind of the, the worst critics argued that it would be about a decade ago. And so this natural gas field that we've got here in Canada, uh, in, uh, in what is it, northwest Alberta and uh, northeast uh, British Columbia, we can access now because of fracking. Is that what you're saying? Yes, exactly. That it's economical to access it, that you can, you know, you can you can get at the product and sell it for more than what it costs you to get at the product. Okay. And uh, how do we get it to market? Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on chumbacasino.com. I looked over at the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at chumbacasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's chumbacasino.com and live the chumba life. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. we prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Okay. So this is, that's the great question, Brian. And, and this, you that's, know, that's, that's the meat on the bones here. So tremendous resource, you know, if, like I say, you know, at, at today's rate, it could, it could serve all of Canada, all of our industry for over a century with what's economical to frack today. Um, and I mentioned before in your show, but people didn't hear it. Natural gas coming out of Alberta, coming out of uh, Northeast BC is the cheapest in the world. And why is it? So we sell it for the least in the world of anyone. And why is that? Is because we have hardly any markets to sell it to. So, for, you know, so it's almost all going to the United States now through a series of pipelines, um, you know, crossing the border of Alberta or BC or Saskatchewan. Uh, and, and, and what they get to do is, is, you know, get our natural gas, uh, you know, for cheap. And then in turn, they sell their natural gas for expensive, you know, but through LNG to European and global markets. And so it's a real nice deal for them, but not great for Canada. So obviously we would like to sell it to global markets ourselves. And that's what all the LNG projects on the BC coast are about the big LNG Canada one, uh, but also cedar, wood fiber, some other ones that are being considered. Now you still have to pipe it from this region, from the Montney to get it to the coast. And that's what Coastal Gas Link is meant to do. It's meant to get good old Montney gas over to LNG Canada. Uh, and so it's happening, but obviously that has been a very, um, very, you know, arduous kind of task for TC Energy to get Coast to Ghost Link. Gas Link built, very political, very controversial, has, you know, overrun, uh, the costs are overrun, the time's overrun. But that is that is the kind of thing, there's another pipeline you could build there too to get even more gas, to more LNG um, liquefaction, liquefaction plants. So that's what we're talking about. And now what prompted me to write the article at the time is that the federal government has proposed an emissions, uh, an emissions cap on the oil and gas industry to reduce it by 42% between now and 2030. Uh, and the oil and gas industry is saying there's no way you can reduce emissions by 42% without also reducing production. And that the world certainly needs more Canadian oil and gas now as we try to get off of Russian oil and gas and there's an energy crisis. And so my point was here is the money 
it would it would fulfill you know you know decades worth of natural gas overseas demand LNG uh, and we can't produce it and with this emissions cap we may never be able to produce it. So what's the solution? Since I wrote that article, Brian, I don't know what I don't know where things stand in Ottawa. It's flipping every day, but. But the emissions cap proposal came out and in July they released a discussion paper. And so, you know, some of us were submitting submissions for that. Then you all all heard Christopher Freeland's speech at the Brookings Institute, another think tank in Washington, DC about two or three weeks ago saying, we must step up, you know, authoritarian regimes are bad um, and we have to fast track energy and resource projects. And for me, that sounds great. I agree, 100% would write that speech that she wrote, you know, tremendous speech but is not consistent with also imposing an emissions cap. And then uh, Minister Wilkinson, natural resources minister, went to Calgary to kind of assuage those fears and say, oh, no, we aren't going to do anything that will impact production. That's not our intent. Sounds great. Music to their ears. Not sure how that is consistent with the proposed emissions cap. Uh, And then even even, uh, Prime Minister Trudeau uh, speaking to Bloomberg, saying that, yes, we need to get Canadian resources out with a solution. Uh, at the same time, one last thing I'll say, Brian, that there's an Indigenous-led LNG project led by the Heisla Nation in Kitimat called Cedar LNG, and it's going through the impact assessment uh, process right now. And last week, the BC regulators said, uh, which is what we've all been saying, that even though the Cedar LNG would 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 bring up emissions in Canada, it would bring them down globally because it would displace Asian cloth. And that, again, music to our ears, that's what we've been saying. That's what the industry has been saying. You'd way rather have natural gas than coal. So so, so, where does the emissions cap uh, proposal stand now? I have no idea. Ottawa is saying many different things at once. So you're the expert here. And I'm just uh, you know someone who's a news junkie and a political junkie and likes to read everything. But it sounds to me like some people uh, on the environmental side, which I completely agree with, uh, uh, from a spirit of it, but are too focused on, on what's going on in Canada rather than what's going on in the globe. And and so therefore thinking about these emissions cap and other things, um, and because clearly from a political standpoint, all they can influence really is what's going on in Canada, they end up uh, trying to focus in on Canada when really it should be a global impact. And your comment about number one, uh, you know, global climate change or global uh, uh, pollution issues offsetting uh, Chinese coal or, or other things is far more important than what exactly we're doing in Canada because climate change is a worldwide problem. And then number two, global security issues, far better to use uh, Canadian natural gas versus Russian natural gas. So are we thinking about things too often in just a Canadian standpoint? And do we need to change our focus to a global standpoint? Well, absolutely. And I think, you know, at the McDonald-Laurie Institute or myself, we might have been arguing this since 2005. And 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 part of the context, I mentioned that Shell Revolution, that oil was very expensive. People were thinking about energy security. The United States was a net energy importer. And then the Shell Revolution happened and they flooded the market uh, with, with cheap oil and gas. And that's why we've had cheap energy for the last decade, decade and a half that we all took for granted. And that couldn't last forever. And so there was a context there, I think, that, you know, the oil sands were not as profitable. Oil companies were not as profitable. Didn't seem like, you know, that there was far more supply than demand. Um, and we could, and 
and we could look inward, I guess, that there was no external concern. And so we could look inward and focus on the inside. But, you know, a decade is not a long time in geopolitics. Um, and, and, you know, an, and an energy crisis was starting to look inevitable. There was far less oil and gas investment happening, but, but consumption, global consumption was still going up. The global population is still rising. And I think for a few years, people in the energy industry would say, we are, we are going to hit a deficit, you know, that we are, we are not investing enough to keep up with consumption. Renewables are not doing the job of replacing oil and gas. Um, and Goldman Sachs CEO made the point last week that we spent $3.8 trillion on renewables in the last decade. And it moved us from using 81% of our primary energy comes from fossil fuels to 80% comes from fossil fuels. Hold it, hold it, hold it, hold it. Repeat that, please. <laughs> we spent three point what billion dollars? In the world, in the world. The Goldman Sachs, this is the Goldman Sachs, if you want to look it up yourself, said we have spent $3.8 trillion on renewables. $3.8 trillion, not billion, trillion. Globally, yes, absolutely. And and primary energy use for the, for the globe, we were at 81% primary energy is fossil fuels, and now we're at 80% is fossil fuels. So in other words, we can't we can't uh, solve climate change by by investing in renewables. We certainly haven't been. There's no evidence. There's no evidence to suggest that we have, that we can. And we can get into that too. But but the whole point is, I think, you know, for, there was a, a nice sweet decade where energy was cheap and and there was not a lot of conflict where we could really look inward and, and, and kind of navel gaze. And that, that has been disrupted. That has obviously been disrupted. Russia has disrupted that uh, kind of uh, vision. China is getting more authoritarian. Um, the COVID supply chain issues also heightened us to kind of these risks um, that that a pure globalization kind of approach without considering security of, of supply chain is not ideal. And so anyways, yes, Brian, I think the conversations that we could not have a year ago about energy security are happening every day now. Okay, so... Let me ask you a question. Natural gas, liquefied natural gas seems to be more needed in Germany than anywhere else. Why are we just talking about getting it to the Pacific coast? Is there any way to get it to the Atlantic? So I don't, you know, I don't know that Germany needs it more than most. Everybody needs it. They just are rich and are able to buy more of it than anyone else and, and go to countries and have Trudeau meet them. But any country that needs natural gas is now paying now, now because because Europe has cut off Russian gas, trying to cut off Russian gas, trying to buy it off global markets, then everyone that's buying it off the global market is in pain. So it's higher in Japan and it's higher in South Korea and it's higher, you know, everywhere else too. Um, so, so it's not it's not just a German issue at all. They've just been the most vocal about it. And, and we're disproportionately dependent on Russian gas from a European perspective. Now, the Montney, the beautiful Montney, you know, which is so cheap to get, re, you know, to, to access, um, you know, the product is so available, so rich, um, overpressured, all these things is so close. You know, one of the beautiful things about it is it's so close to Asia from a global perspective, you know, that it's a very easy kind of shipping route to get over to this enormous market. And I don't think people appreciate, but Asia accounts for 4.5 billion of us, you know, of the 7 billion people, 4.5 are in Asia. And I make the point in the article that in, in uh, you know, by 2050, there'll be 5.3 billion of them. So they will grow 
by more than today's population of the United States, the European Union, and Canada combined in the next 30 years? And what does that look like for energy demand? So while Europe, um, you know, there is, I mean, I absolutely think there's a business case for European, uh, L, you know, LNG also. But Europe is population is going to be in decline. They probably are going to spend more on renewables, trying to get off fossil fuels than others. But in Asia, it's just, you know, it's just going to be up and up and up. Okay, so bottom line, if you were the Minister of Energy or the Prime Minister of Canada, what would you do? Here's what the Minister of Defense should be doing is getting that, you know, because this is this is such a security issue. So we have that gas in Newfoundland, in Quebec, in Nova Scotia, in New Brunswick. Uh, the One of the, the big shale fields, I think is the, the Utica, if I'm saying that right, goes into Quebec. So the kind of the big shell that they're producing in Pennsylvania goes all the way up into Quebec. You could absolutely develop it and ship it over and liquefy it. Um, what we're doing instead, so, you know, that doesn't look like it's going to happen. It won't happen fast in Canada. Too bad. It is too bad. What we're doing is you could produce more natural gas, send more of it to the United States so that they can liquefy it and send it overseas. Again, this is a good deal for the United States, not a good deal for us, um, but that's what needs to happen. And then if we can start shipping it off the West Coast. Again, it's a global market now. So anything we can add to the global market will take off the pressure of the price and make more available to Europe. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on chumbacasino.com. I looked over the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at chumbacasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's chumbacasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. DTW, avoid were prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. So we should have a very comprehensive strategy on accessing our natural gas reserves across Canada. Yes, for the short-term shipping it to the United States, but long-term shipping it to the coasts in LNG facilities and supplying the global market. Is that correct? That's correct. And Brian, you made a great point. We should have a strategy. We should have Canada with the third largest reserves of oil, tremendous reserves of natural gas, and the nuclear and the hydro should probably have an energy security strategy. And think about how, how us as the the biggest exporter in the OECD, the Organization of, of Developed you know, Countries, the West, about how what role we are going to play. So it's not just OPEC and not just Russia and Venezuela that dominate the energy market in the years to come. Are you telling me we don't have a strategy? There is no strategy, Brian. We do not, we do not have an energy security strategy. It's even worse than that. About 99% of our natural gas goes to the United States, almost all of it, you know, unless we process it and ship it off in a different form. And 96% roughly of our oil goes to the United States. So we don't have an energy security strategy. We've, we've given it to the United States to use, to advance their energy security, to advance their foreign policy. Sounds so, like we should be electing you uh, Minister of uh, Natural Resources or something. Yeah, well, you know what? I'll give Gilkinson some credit. Um he is doing a much better job in the last six months. He's saying the right things and doing the right things. And, and one thing when we get to nuclear is he has 100% embraced nuclear in the last month or two. Whereas, uh, you know, just a few months ago, nuclear wasn't even included in Canada's green bond scheme. So they have made a 180 on nuclear as well. Wilkinson's actually doing a pretty good job. I think the cabinet is divided, though. We're going to take a break. 
uh, and come back. And I'm going to ask you a little bit more about nuclear and about this big uh, deal that you talked about, and about how uh, nuclear has to play such a big role in the future. Stay with us, everyone. We're talking energy tonight. No radio? No problem. Stream us live on Saga960AM.ca. Welcome back, everyone, to the Brian Crumby Radio Hour on Saga Night 60. Our, our conversation tonight is about energy, energy security, uh, both uh, from a from a energy standpoint, but also from a geopolitical standpoint, as well as from a climate change standpoint, as well as from, I guess, a jobs standpoint. And one of the other topics that our guest has talked about is how this can be really helpful, beneficial, important to the Indigenous communities in Canada. So we'll have to come back to that as well. Our guest is Heather exner Perot. She is a senior fellow with the McDonald Laurie Institute. She's a visiting scholar at something called the Wilson Center in Washington, D.C., where she's calling uh, into us from. Um, maybe we should talk about the midterm elections, but maybe that's a different topic for a different time. Um, Heather, we just we're touching on nuclear, and uh, I interviewed a bunch of people from was it called COP twenty six? I think we're into COP twenty seven, aren't we? But COP twenty six a year ago, and uh, and they were saying that for the first time in a while, nuclear was you know the topic du jour, and people were saying that we can't solve our climate change problems without uh, nuclear, and that so many different people had been against nuclear. Um, power in the past because of nuclear waste, uh, environmental concerns, but we're coming to the conclusion that nuclear was one of the only potential solutions. Um, a lot of people, uh, I don't think, realize that uh, that we've solved in Ontario our uh, our climate change coal issues because of nuclear, and uh, and yet at the same time um, we're closing down um, one of our biggest nuclear power plants, and so therefore how we're going to replace that ends up being a big issue. Tell me a little bit um, about this deal that you wrote about and tell me what you think Canada's nuclear strategy should be. Well, thanks for teeing that up because because I do love to talk about nuclear and um, and what has, you know, so much has changed in two years. So, you know, in the op-ed I get into it, if anyone wants to read it, but, um, you know, basically Fukushima, you know, the, the accident in Japan um, really put kind of the nuclear industry, you know, on, on the ground, you know, in the corner. And it was a very bad decade for nuclear. Um, so mo most reactors are aging. They're still being built, but not in the West at all. They're being built a lot in China and Russia <clears throat> and India, but not in the West. So it seemed like a dying industry in the in the West. So much so that Cameco, the, the big uranium miner in northern Saskatchewan I mentioned, actually was um, curtailing their production, uh, actually, you know, put put their mines into maintenance because uh, there were not the contracts. They were producing more than the market needed and the prices were very low and now what a shift in two years just to exactly your point and again something else the russia ukraine war has hastened is the realization that renewables are not going to do the trick um we can't build them up fast enough cheap enough people will say we can but um, you know the international energy agency says we need to do six times more mining to reach our net zero scenario. And, and there aren't six times more mines. You know, the investment isn't there. They're not being built, it won't happen. But nuclear is a proven technology um, and that one's seeing its heyday. So right now we have about 436 reactors in the world. Um, another 60 are now being constructed and over 400 have now been planned or proposed. And it seems like every week, sometimes a few a week are now being proposed and planned um, that everyone is, Everyone, you know, in, in dozens of countries around the world, not a Western thing or a Chinese thing or an Indian thing, but around the world, 
are looking at nuclear as the next solution. And that small module reactor, some of the regular kind of standard conventional reactors, but also the new small module reactors uh, might allow it to, you know, bring the cost down or, or be, you know, brought into places where we hadn't seen it before. So amidst all this, Cameco, the big uranium miner, it also does some fuel enrichment in Ontario. There's quite a bit of Cameco operations in Ontario to serve your great nuclear reactors and the can-do uh, models. Uh, and Brookfield, uh, which is huge, you know, bigger than some of the big banks, Brookfield, based in, in Toronto. But they have a huge renewables uh, division. I think Mark Carney leads that now. Um, and anyways, so a globally important renewable energy player. And together, uh, they purchased Westinghouse, which is the big nuclear energy company in the United States, which uh, has, you know, services half the reactors in the world, uh, I think built half the reactors in the United States. Um, so just a, a giant in the nuclear industry, but went into bankruptcy a few years ago because it uh, was over cost on, on some of its reactors and because the nuclear industry was down. So now these two Canadian companies own this nuclear behemoth. And what this does is it creates a, a, a front to back and nuclear company from uranium to the processing of the fuel, to the building of the reactors, to the maintenance of the reactors, to the to the shutdown afterwards. Um, and Westinghouse does kind of the standard reactors and also is looking at small modular reactors also. And also, you know, while Cameco develops fuel for the Candus, Westinghouse can develop fuels not only for its own reactors, for the for the the reactors that use the Russian the main Russian model. And that's what kind of the Eastern European countries, including Ukraine, are trying to find alternate sources of uranium, you know, of enriched um, uranium uh, for nuclear fuel. Right now, Russia is, you know, dominant in that market, has does 40% of uranium fuel enrichment in the world, even though it's not that big of a miner. And lots of countries, again, are trying to find alternatives. So this deal positions Cameco and Westinghouse to, to, to not only, you know, to make it easier to do nuclear because your supply chain, you know, it's for utility, it's all plug and play, you know, you got kind of a one-stop shop, um, gets the uranium, Canadian uranium uh, to, to more markets, better markets, it's good economically for us, gets, uh, you know, a lot of countries off of Russian energy dependence and makes, you know, makes it easier for nuclear to become that source of the future. Uh, this sounds exciting, it, it, but it makes me wonder, did we make a big mistake selling CanDo? Um, I mean, I, I wouldn't get, I wouldn't claim to know about the different reactors, except for now that we own another great reactor type. And so, so whatever, you know, I think the interesting things with the small mod reactors, you know, where there's, you know, I've heard 50, I've heard 150, um, different models, different potentials of technologies. And some of them would probably draw on can do technology and some on other. So, so these technologies still out there, and I think it's going to, you know, we people are saying it's a renaissance for nuclear, but it's also going to be a renaissance for nuclear technology of all the different ways that you could do fusion, even fission, um, the different ways that you, you can make it safer, more passive, uh, cheaper. Um, and so I don't know if we made a mistake selling Candu, uh, but I think, I think you know, there's so much happening, and Canada is now leading, is helping lead that way in developing and and getting some of these you know, commercialized. Let me ask you how you would address an environmentalist that was wor that's worried about nuclear waste. And, uh, you know, I understand our minister of the environment uh, at one point in time was, uh, was an anti-nuke, was very against nuclear power uh, because of the waste issue. How do you respond to that? 
I mean, I, I'm a risk. I'm not a risk averse person. <laughs> I'm comfortable with risk than most people, I think. But I have like I've read into this, and the thing about nuclear waste is that is that we know where every single gram of nuclear waste is. You know that we you you keep it and you store it and you package it. Whereas every other kind of energy waste just goes into the atmosphere or goes into water, or goes into the ground. So, so in that sense, nuclear waste is ideal that it's, it's, you know, it's very compacted. You know, I, I read, you know, for example, the entire life cycle of my energy use, and I fly around a fair amount at the end of my lifespan, if it was nuclear waste would fit into less than a, a you know, a can of Coke. Um, so the amount of waste that you produce from nuclear is very limited. Now, obviously it is a tricky issue. So I, when you hear from nuclear advocates, they feel like they have a pretty good handle on the waste issue that's contained. There's all kinds of hazardous waste in the world. Nuclear waste is not the only hazardous waste um, that is you know, difficult to handle and difficult to store, but we find ways to do it safely. But in Finland, which does use nuclear, they're coming up with the world's first permanent repository. Um, and there is consensus in the scientific and nuclear communities of what permanent nuclear waste storage should look like. Uh, it would be you know, deep underground, kind of under rock. Um, Finland is building that, I think in 2023 or 2025, they will start storing nuclear waste permanently. And of course, in Canada, we're well along that path down to, I think, two communities in Ontario that have volunteered, you know, that, that, that volunteered themselves to be able to host these things uh, for the jobs that it would create. Uh, but you're burying it, you know, very deep underground, uh, far below water sources. Um, so radiation and uranium exists naturally also. <laughs> uh, so it's not, again, there are other hazardous wastes in the world. Um, and this one, no one in the nuclear industry seems to be that. You seems to think that there are no solutions to it. So in Ontario, and I'm not sure you must be familiar with some of our issues. I think the uh, we're, we're refurbishing one plant and uh, and then planning to close down another but no new nuclear is planned. Given what you're talking about, where we're almost doubling our nuclear capacity worldwide, at least from a number of plant standpoint, are we missing the boat in Ontario? Yeah, well, there was a huge announcement this week. Um, so the, the first small modular reactor, what a small modular reactor is, it just means it's a nuclear reactor of 300 megawatts or less. And it can be all right down to a micro reactor, you know, five megawatts, say that you want to power a mine or a community up north or a nuclear icebreaker, for example. Uh, so they are building one, uh, I think, at Darlington. And and just this week, the Minister of Natural Resources, again, has fully embraced nuclear just in the last few months, announced a loan under the infrastructure bank of uh, just, you know, just south of a billion dollars, I think about $900 million, maybe it's 870 or something like that, uh, to bring that Canada's first small mod reactor, uh, you know, to, you know, to producing energy. And so that is a very significant investment. Um, we're all trying, everyone is trying to get SMRs to a point where they can be commercialized and can be cheaper. The first few models will be more expensive. Uh, and then we're hoping that the costs, you know, come down sharply. So that was a huge investment that will bring a, you know, 300 megawatt uh, reactor on online into the grid in Ontario. So again, if you were the minister of natural resources, or the prime minister or whatever, uh, what would the strategy be on nuclear? So, so this is an interesting thing. Uh, Brian, is that 
The liberals have, have not been the leaders on this, but conservative provincial governments have been leading on SMRs. There is an SMR action plan. There is an MOU between Ontario, Saskatchewan, New Brunswick, and I think Alberta now. The reason Alberta wants it is because that's very important to their net zero strategy in the oil sands. That right now, a lot of why the oil sands are so energy intensive is they're burning natural gas to separate the bitumen from the sand. And if they could use nuclear, to separate the bitumen from the sand, then that carbon intensity would, you know, drop by the wayside. So, and, you know, Saskatchewan's obviously interested because we have their uranium. We've announced, uh, you know, our first small module reactor um, and they're kind of in the planning phase. They've chosen a model and doing some of the feasibility. New Brunswick has announced their first small module reactor and Ontario also. And I think Ontario's will be the first. So there are many things happening, uh, but so far it's been primarily provincial government led. Um, the Ministry of Natural Resources has been very supportive, um, but, the, but the government hasn't been that supportive. But now again, like I say, in the last two months, Wilkinson has really has really you know, turned, turned the corner on this and is now you know, starting to lead this. It it almost seems like uh, you know Canada's historical success has been as a as a resource based uh, country, and for a while we tried to forget that or, or 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 not admit it. And and what you're advocating is that we admit it again and become a an energy superpower and be happy with that. I mean, I mean, we are so I can't believe how blessed we are, and that and, and that means that we become you know entitled to all these resources and take them for granted. And again, like you know. Um, yeah, I pointed this out in a different op-ed, but, you know, Prime Minister Trudeau saying um, in Davos a few years ago that you've known us for our resources. Now we'd like you to know us for our resourcefulness. And this idea that we're moving from this 20th century economy to a 21st century economy and wanting to leave natural resources behind. But look around you, whatever room you're sitting in, you are you are surrounded by natural resources. And I think... Um, and I think appreciating that when the price of commodities goes up, that's not good for human development for us or for anyone. Where President Macron of France has said it's the it's the you know end of abundance. It's the age, it's new you know scarcity is the new age that we're coming into. Um, we will never feel that to that same extent in Canada. There are countries that have never felt abundance, you know, that have always been, uh, you know, very poor. There have been countries that have, you know, gotten to abundance and now are going to face scarcity. In Canada, we were, we have so much. Um, and the one thing we can do for the OECD, for the West, is to be that reliable supplier to take over from some of the market dominance that China and Russia have on energy and, 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 and minerals and be a safe, responsible supplier of these things to our allies and to everyone. We're talking today, energy, and we're going to be back in two minutes. I'm going to ask our guest about an article she wrote um, in regards to uh, a deal with Indigenous communities. Because I think one of the things about energy that a lot of people historically think is that the Indigenous communities um, are against any kind of development. And I think what your article suggests is that uh, there's a, a different strategy in, uh, in, in real partnership. Uh, let's take a break and be back in two minutes. Stream us live at saga960am.ca. Welcome back, everyone, to the Brian Crombie Radio Hour on Saga 960. I'm having, a, for me, a really interesting conversation with our guest, Heather 
Exner Perot, who is a senior fellow with McDonald Laurie Institute. She's a visiting scholar at uh, the Wilson Center. She's a really smart person uh, in talking about uh, energy and oil and gas and fracking and uh, and some mine here and some gas field there and uh, nuclear. And oh my God, it's just been a really interesting conversation. But one of the things that you wrote about that I really want to focus on now is uh, this deal that you mentioned where um, Enbridge did a deal to bring in some indigenous uh, um, organizations uh, as as partners. Um, and 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 I think what you're suggesting is that this is a strategy that uh, could be done a lot more and that uh, partnership is something we should be thinking about rather than opposition all the time. Tell me about um, both this deal, um, but also how our attitudes you think should change in regards to our indigenous communities. Yeah, well, thanks for that, Brian. So <clears throat> I think there is in our mind, you know, the idea that there's an antagonistic relationship between the natural resource industry and indigenous communities. And that was certainly true for decades, that for decades, you know, there was kind of a carte blanche for natural resource industry to come in, uh, take what they want, leave what they what they didn't want. Uh, and that indigenous communities had all the all the kind of negative uh, aspects of resource development and got none of the positives. Now, now legally, this started to change. Um, for a few years, there was a movement of having impact and benefit agreements kind of out of the, the Mackenzie Pipeline Valley in inquiry kind of changed some minds on that, that, well, let's provide some jobs and some contracts and maybe some passive royalties. And, and that was the kind of, you know, there was that shift there. But after 2005, the, the Supreme Court affirmed the duty to consult. And this meant that Indigenous communities needed to be consulted, uh, not to approve, didn't have a veto, but would be consulted on these projects that affected their traditional rights or hunting, fishing, gathering, um, and also accommodated if it did affect those rights. And this was a watershed. And it, and I said in the article, it threw the natural resource sector in, in for a loop uh, because this was another layer of jurisdiction of potential, you know, not potential. There were tons of legal challenges, more costs, uh, more people to deal with. Uh, and, and that, you know, caused economic hardship, but also now that we're 20 years through it, are seeing a new model, you know, uh, actually a win-win situation. So I work with Indigenous communities on resource development probably most of my time, you know, probably over half my week. And, and it, by and large, they are not against resource development. That's what they'll say. We're not against resource development. We're against being left out. And so for too long, the resources were taken to their from their territories with no benefits. And now they have the legal leverage to be able to prevent that. And so from a resource development, uh, you know, kind of perspective, from the sector perspective, getting them to be on board, to be a partner instead of a litigant uh, is, is the best strategy to get these done, you know, in, in an efficient way. It has happened first in oil and gas, like I said, with pipelines. Um, because that is the one that needs most social license. If you look at a coastal gas link or a TMX, you're talking about dozens of First Nations. And so even, for example, in TMX, if 96, you know, approve or aren't opposed, but four are opposed, well, you can still end up for years in court. And so on a linear project, like a pipeline, where you need so many different First Nations to consent or to agree or not to oppose uh, that is where this new gold standard of equity ownership is coming in, that the communities along those routes, uh, first it was Northern Courier Pipeline in Alberta, then it was Coastal Gas Link, and now this new Athabascan uh, series of seven pipelines, that the Indigenous communities in the affected territories are now part owners of those pipelines and getting their share of the resources out of them. 
And then the next one to come is in Ontario, where Hydro One um, announced about a month ago that all of its new transmission lines, because it's again the same the same linear project that we're going through different uh, nations that. All projects more than $100 million will be will provide a 50-50 equity option for the affected Indigenous communities in that territory. So this is, you know, if we need to get our resources out, our allies want it, uh, you know, we need it for, the you know, develop the world, human development. Having Indigenous peoples be part owners of those projects is the way to do it in a win-win way. Sounds like partnership is the way to go. Partnership is the way, who would have thought? Actually working with people, collaborating rather than just trying to force things through. Yeah. And and I mean, we are a rich, wealthy country thanks to this land. So there's enough to go around. There's enough for everyone. Uh, and, I don't, you know, there's very few Canadians anymore that don't want to see uh, Indigenous communities get their fair share uh, and, and, and be exercised their self-determination. And so, you know, this is a, this is a, a, a model that industry is embracing. It doesn't work for every single kind of project. Uh, but it works for a lot of projects and and uh, Indigenous communities are getting their own source revenues to do their own projects, provide their own services. Heather exner Puro, thank you so much for educating us about energy and uh, about oil and gas, about fracking, about natural gas, about LNG, about, uh, about geopolitical uh, security, about energy security, about how Canada's uh, being taken advantage of by the United States, or at least uh, we're uh, not taking advantage of our own natural gas and allowing the United States to take advantage of us, how we've got to have a energy strategy, how we've got to have a nuclear strategy, how we've got to partner with our Indigenous communities. Really appreciate your time today. Thanks for having me. That's our show for tonight, everyone. Thanks for joining us. Good night. No radio? No problem. Stream us live on Saga960AM.ca. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on Chumbacasino.com. I looked over the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's ChumbaCasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. VGW. Void. we prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.